0: Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. I'm Ian Montgomery, one of the co-founders of Label Sessions. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. In this episode, we have a conversation with Rami Nassar. Rami has been a leader in how artificial intelligence and machine learning factors into product design, digital services, platforms, and beyond. With a storied career, he's been the head of innovation for Mattel, He's founded his own venture called A Thousand Days Out that focuses on emerging technologies, how they can disrupt industries, and how strategic foresight can better prepare leaders for the future. Full disclosure, Rami was working from home with his young child, Riley, that day. You probably hear a few bits of Riley demanding some attention in the background. I hope it doesn't interrupt. So listening pleasure. Nick from Label Sessions finds out what Rami's all about.
1: We will make a start. There we go. So, uh, Rami, you are one of those people that you have to describe lots of commas or slashes because you do lots of different things. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are all the different things that you're up to right now?
2: Yeah, uh, building a condo building, that's a fun challenge. Uh, So in the real estate space, um, former technology person who used to do a lot of work in the the field of AI, but now everyone's an AI expert, and they figure that ChatGPT has solved all their problems, and they don't need people who understand math at all anymore so put that a little bit on the back burner and really what i'm most passionate about right now is uh futures thinking strategic foresight whatever label you want to give it but how do we imagine and think about what the world looks like in five ten fifteen years from now and and build for that
1: okay and so did you in the past see yourself always on a path towards becoming a kind of strategic foresight person or Uh, i actually thought those
2: am i allowed to swear on this or not yeah absolutely i mean yeah I thought those people were shit because the, the problem with foresight is that uh, people who, whether they are academically trained or not, in my case, uh, sometimes they'll call themselves futurists, which I hate the term because it implies that you know what the future will bring in and none of us do. We can read the tea leaves and we can pick up on trends and forces, but anyone who claims to predict the future, uh, well, missed out on a couple of big ones over the last five years, right?
1: Yeah, okay, okay so 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 what's the term you do like so you do like strategic foresight you don't like futurism is that a fair playback
2: yeah i like and i like futurist thinking you know i think that's a nice term too
1: okay okay and you mentioned as well there's the kind of there's different scenes of that right there's a kind of academic foresight thing going on there's a kind of uh, sort of more trends driven foresight how would you describe the piece of it you're most comfortable with for me it's the practical side so
2: a little bit removed from the academic um in the sense of I kinda wanna know what these things mean to us, and that us being the team I'm working with, the board I'm working with, product I'm working on, what do these forces, trends, how do we the biggest thing is how do we connect the dots? If we go back 10, 15 years into the past, start seeing those those trends emerging, can we extrapolate that forward? In fact, I actually I've always loved the word extrapolate, and now I feel like a copycat because Apple has just produced a TV series called Extrapolations that is Quite literally, you know, foresight and sci-fi uh, in action made into a, into a dystopian-ish future.
1: Yeah, okay. okay. And, and actually, it's interesting for some people when they hear this kind of topic. I mean, what is the doing of strategic foresight actually involve? Like, what happens when someone gives you an area to look at?
2: The funny thing is, the way I go about it, we spend more time looking back than we do looking forward. Uh, the answers are often in the rearview mirror at least the things that point us toward the answer right those trends those patterns those dots we connect uh i'll give you a brilliant brief little example um the notion of a chat gpt right sonic there's many like any sort of large language model yeah they've kind of gotten good in the last 18 to 24 months I've got a terrific little three-volume sci-fi series by a Canadian author. I'm Canadian. uh, Written... I want to say... two thousand. I should look it up. 2006-7 kind of time frame that fully... I won't say predicted, but imagine this world. And in fact, the the brilliant thing about the story, it's it's called the WWW series, which is actually not World Wide Web. It's Wake, Watch, and Wonder, the titles of the three individual books. Uh, Wake is about an AI emerging, and waking up on the internet. And the only reason it's discovered is discovered by... So I, I fell in love with the book because it actually takes place in my hometown in Waterloo, uh, which was at the time the headquarters of Blackberry, the headquarters of the one of the biggest theoretical physics institutes in the world. So this AI wakes up and emerges, and it's actually a young girl who discovers it, and she discovers that she's visually impaired. So she interacts with the computer JAWS, which is an audio tool, and that's the only reason she discovers it. And one day, and this is the potential of these tools—the the exciting thing—One day, to prove to the world that the AI is not nefarious. It means it uh, it hacks into the New York Times, the Washington Post, all these publications overnight, and the next day, the entire world wakes up to a, the same cover story, and it's a cure for cancer. It went and read every cancer study ever done, and realized by synthesizing all that information hey, you humans, you already cured it, you just couldn't step back far enough. No one person could read and digest all the research ever done and realize if you make this protein, whatever it happens to be, all cancers ever ever cured. It's implausible, but it's a fun thought experiment to think, you know, well, all of our millions of studies on a particular topic, no one can understand them all. That's the cool side of AI. So I actually tend to look to sci fi and things like that for the future looking stuff quite a
1: bit, yeah, it's interesting in terms of science fiction uh looking to the history. It's interesting as a foresight practitioner, I don't know as an outsider you've lived through the tech experience but also lived through like the Waterloo experience, which is kind of a city that it's still like the pioneering or pioneering edge of things, but in a way, you kind of built a future that didn't quite happen, maybe in the BlackBerry story. Like, like what impact do you think? You know, what is it about your background that makes you a good foresight practitioner? Is that is that part of it? Yeah, I mean, BlackBerry is a great case study in failures and foresight. I mean, there's in terms
2: of mainstream companies, everyone would know you could just pick. You could toss a point and either pick Blockbuster, Kodak, or BlackBerry as a brand that everyone knew at one point was the runaway market leader. And did not do a good job of looking at what changes were really happening in the market. Uh, and, and it's funny timing. Like, I'm literally going to a, a special screening of the BlackBerry movie in a couple of weeks that is being offered just to former or current employees uh, in Waterloo you know, all the theaters in my town that have been
1: booked out. Wow. What an invite. It's both like film and therapy night, I guess, for some people, right? It will be. It'll be interesting. And, like, there will be people there who have actors portraying them
2: in a movie, like, who just like, well, dream and a nightmare, I guess. Sir. <laughs> for a tech company, probably never thought that she'd be a character in a in a movie
1: one day. Like, it's kind of wild. I'm presuming you're not a character in that movie, but if there was one, is it when you look back? Because I guess one thing is being good at foresight. The other thing is companies inviting you to come and have a look at what their future might be. Do you do you look back and think that there are kind of breaks in that it's sort of like big breaks you had where companies started to ask you different questions, or you managed to kind of step into this world more? Maybe. I mean. The challenge with foresight is hindsight's
2: easy, right? We can dissect BlackBerry or Blockbuster or Kodak, any of those, and see all the things that went wrong, right? Blackberry's easy. They just underestimated the consumer drive for devices. BlackBerry believed that corporates would pay for the devices have enterprise server connected devices and that one day everyone would just have their personal phone and a corporate device. Big companies, right? JP Morgan and bank of america i did a lot of financial sector stuff who are buying five ten twenty thousand devices at a time realize hey if we don't need to buy these twenty thousand blackberries and all our employees just bring their own insert smartphone name here that is a major line savings and we will figure out the security as we go but to 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 have that insight in real time and to see that, it's the frog boiling in the water analogy. It's any of those, right? It's, it's a lot harder. And I think the only way to do it is to look at analogy, look at, look at the past, look at sci-fi, and see what it tells you about the future.
1: Also, your practice, I guess, is now you work across different sectors, quite different industries. Historically, you've done that. I don't, I don't know whether you see those things as career jumps or whether it's all in one line. But do you, do you think it's helpful or challenging to kind of move between industries and sectors like you've done?
2: I think... Moving across industries and sectors is especially in foresight is insanely valuable because it lets me see kind of those macro trends. So I now I do a lot of work in healthcare and clinical trials, in particular with healthcare, and it is a tech laggard industry or sector because of the uh, compliance regulatory framework and the the risks people's well being, health, and livelihood uh, when especially dealing with ex- experimental drugs.
1: Yeah. So so it's so almost, you can be the connector by kind of crossing sectors, you know, so you should be aware of things people wouldn't be aware of if they were in kind of one yeah. silo.
2: And, you know, you could say the same, like nonprofits. Uh, I do a lot of work with boards of nonprofit organizations on the forest side stuff. It's really important for a boards directors to, to be thinking longer term. And it, it, even a board's role is to essentially mitigate risk and think long-term. That's essentially what they do. And, The risks are the same in every industry in a sense, Uh, but you can start to see these patterns again. So one of the big, big trends I see in boards and in nonprofits is let's stop being a nonprofit. Let's stop thinking like a nonprofit. Let's stop thinking like a charity and think about an actual business model that scales. Let's, Let's not shy away from words like customers and revenue just because we're a charity or a nonprofit. And again, seeing that happen across boards of nonprofits
1: in different industries is remarkable. It's interesting because I guess one one trend is non profits from a UK perspective maybe being more commercial in the language to think about the future. On the flip side, commercial entities talking more about purpose and some of the things that typically yeah. wouldn't have been a non profit world. So, and then you've got these hybrid organizations, right? And, and I don't know if it, it's in the
2: UK, but in, in the US, you've got a legal structure called a B Corp, which is a separate type corporation that uh, has whether you call it CSR or triple bottom line or just being a good corporate citizen. Baked into its actual bylaws as an organization. So uh, in Canada, it's interesting, nonprofits and charities are, are, are different. You can be a nonprofit, but not a charity, or you can be a for profit, or you can be an e and It's almost like a spectrum, but I think the gaps between them is, is starting to diminish.
1: Yeah. And do you find When you start to talk to boards, maybe in particular, around futures thinking, do you find that certain sectors are more open to it, certain areas of more resistance to it, or like obstacles in their way as they think about the future? The common pattern I actually see is they kind of come around. So this idea of,
2: uh, so the toughest thing that I deal with in in my approach is that I, if, if I were running a, call it a half day workshop, we'd spend the first 90 minutes going back the last 20 years. And I can see people grumbling and mumbling under their breath and not knowing why we're doing that exercise, what that has to do with anything. And then there's this moment where kind of the dots start to connect as they go back far enough in time that it starts to make sense. And they can literally extrapolate that that same trend line forward and start to not predict, but start to anticipate what changes might uh, impact. That's the hardest thing.
1: Right. Okay. So it's it's, it's almost like a the, the sort of the human beings in the room rather than the industry that are in that shapes that, I guess. Yeah, and then I I also have a
2: massive aversion to the phrase trust the process. I won't say it as much as I often want to tell people to please just I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have hired me if I didn't somewhat know what I'm doing. But I won't ask people to trust me. I just try to so I have I recently once said I refuse to say trust the process, but me telling you that refusal rebut <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: communicate some of that. You kinda of, the words are in there, just just yeah. cloaked in a different way. <laughs> so yeah, so, so it's interesting sometimes when we're doing these profiles of people, it can sound to the outside world like, you know, you kinda of found your way into this foresight thing, you then do that with global companies all over the world. There must have been some challenges along the way. When you look back, do you, are there times you think actually this was you know, were there tough times that lead into having a global foresight practice like you have now? Absolutely. I think building any business does. Um, For me,
2: my approach has always been as one area of pseudo expertise starts to either fade away, become less interesting or get commoditized, I gradually step to another. So there wouldn't be a point in time where I said I no longer do design thinking workshops, I now do foresight ones, but certainly over the last five, seven years, everyone out there thinks they know how to do design thinking, they also say human-centered design is how they do things. Some do, some don't. Uh, I'm sure you see the same.
1: But also, what motivates you in that? Because some people might see the current situation as, hey, I've been talking about AI for a while, loads of people are talking about AI now, Uh, that's a great thing. I can go and just share my story at a bigger level, whereas clearly there's something in it which you think is less fun now. So so what is it that, that motivates you? Yeah, I
2: just like swimming against the current, I guess. Uh, I think you're probably the same as some of our shared colleagues are are certainly uh, of that
1: same mindset. It just gets boring whenever else thinks you know to do. It's interesting, though, because all the way through this, you've actually called out, you you quite like some of the practical challenges because there are futurists you would speak to who are only really wanting to talk about 20 years from now because they don't really want to get involved in the the choices in the here and now, whereas you've kind of got an interest in that. Is there something in the motivation in terms of seeing things happen or something that's, that's relevant to you or.
2: Yeah. Like I, as much as I will preach that we're not trying to predict the future. Sometimes it feels good when you get it right. Uh, nearly a decade ago, I was uh, presenting to, I was running a workshop for a, a deli meat company uh, just to be an instigator slash maybe Subconsciously try to piss them off. I made a huge uh, cover of The Economist. I uh it's a fake cover. It was for it was predicted the year 2020, and the headline was the end of meat. Living in a world with uh where the world has just decided not to eat meat anymore. There were trends pointing us towards that. Vegetarianism has risen more than double over the last decade. Still a small percentage. Of veganism more than triple over the last decade. Plant-based diets. But the cool thing was that, that that cover of The Economist that we conjured up was dated March 2020. In July 2019, Beyond meat IPO, which was not the indicator that the world doesn't need meat on anymore. But all of a sudden, a company that made fake meat is now a publicly traded company. They got valued like a tech company and then their stock dive-bombed after that makes sense. But damn, if it didn't feel good to kind of like, we were nine months off in the prediction or sort of that, that timeline. Again, not the prediction there. And it, it was nice to sort of see that those trends, when you added them up, did point to that future. It's only
1: so the next question uh you know it's, it's interesting because the question is how do you juggle things inside and outside work and i don't want to you know doubt our producer josh's uh, skills in this but there might be some background noise people listen to this podcast at different points in it so i mean how do you manage all of that you you're you're running a global practice there's a new baby in your life there's stuff going on how do you juggle yeah. things
2: i i guess i'm just fortunate i just uh say yes to the things i like doing and we've got a pretty small team and we're all Align family-focused people as a team, and uh, the the only thing that's really tough is travel. Um, you know, in a the the COVID-induced virtual world we lived in, could do everything from from a home office. Uh, I find a lot of the clients I work with now want to do things in person again. Uh, so that means being away for 24, 48, 72 hours. I tend to get back as quick as I can, but uh, it's just fortunate, I guess, that it's not being too disruptive. Partner who's out, he's a little cranky today, but uh, we've, we've also got a furnace being installed, so it's not as quiet in the house as usual.
1: Furnace being installed that sounds like a, a moment in the house, you know. Oh, fire,
2: we're not even going to go down the path because I also have <laughs> raccoons living in my ceiling the past week that I've been trying to deal with, so it, it, it's just one of those,
1: yeah. Good, so, I mean, that sounds there's plenty going on, that's good, you know. Force interesting foresight, interesting here and now,
2: but what I will say is, um, you know, I've had online workshops where clients are paying me you know not riches and riches but paying me fairly for my time and expertise where I've said openly like hey listen I'm dadding at this time i've my little guy's been on more teams meetings than than most one and a half year olds have been uh he was on in my arms with his separation anxiety with me just earlier this morning and like hey guys Riley's here with me and it actually probably buys me more pity and uh understanding to to put him in frame with me on video than Better just have the background
1: noise. Yeah, exactly. We maybe shouldn't put that in the public podcast. People know that, that you're just going for sympathy when the baby, when Riley comes on.
0: <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast. For live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to just collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. So, okay, so, so looking back, I'm asking a
1: bit more about you personally now. I mean, if you could, what advice would you give your younger self coming into this whole line of work? The biggest thing that I learned, just
2: brief anecdote. Uh, my 1st I'm an engineer by training. Uh, first job is doing engineering work. I wanted to get more into human-facing stuff, which typically meant sales marketing kind of thing. Uh, had a great engineering job, found my way into a job at BlackBerry doing sales marketing, solution sales, tech sales kind of stuff. It was a great building block. But when I went and told my boss at that engineering firm that I was leaving, he yeah, asked why. And I told him, well, I wanted to get into this kind of stuff. His answer was, well, why didn't you tell us? And we could have put you up with a mentor and had you like learn that stuff while you do this. You don't have to make the big leap and you can figure it out. I didn't know I was allowed to tell people what I wanted to do. I just literally assumed that if you're not here as an engineer five days a week, then you're of no value to the company. And totally changed my perspective. At that point, I'd already made the decision to, to leave and I did end up leaving, but damn, if that company didn't end
1: up doing quite, quite successfully in, uh, <laughs> with an exit that uh, would have been uh would have been a, a bit of a, a bit of a shift it's amazing actually asking this question to people how many people get great advice from a boss that they're just leaving like once it's beyond the transactional work stuff anymore things open up
2: just didn't know that that was an okay thing to do my 23 or four year old self just would have thought that you get in trouble for that you can't tell people what you want to do for a living what you're passionate about got hired to do this and this is what you do so that led to just no longer caring so the next time uh years later I had a team, I was working for an agency, I had a team of 70 people, a bunch of directors reporting into me, and I just got tired of doing performance reviews and talking about their problems. So I went to our CEO and said, listen, uh, someone else needs to manage all these people. I will bill out on client work enough to pay my own salary and the rest of the time I just want to do other stuff that may or may not be of benefit to us as a company, but I won't cost you any money. And there's probably a win-win relationship here uh made the change everyone thought i got demoted it was great i was no longer in the leadership team i no longer had a team reporting into me and i build out a day a week and i spend four days a week just spending doing things i thought were interesting and half the time it helped
1: now, that's a really interesting thing in terms of the way people think about careers in some ways because it's like lots of people would structure their career around seniority access to leadership team meetings, that kind of thing. But sometimes you can promote yourself out of that and actually do a thing. You know,
2: there are companies that are good at that, right? Like Google has figured that out. If you're an engineer at Google, you can have a great career ladder where you are never an, if you don't want to be, you're never an engineering manager. You're never a director. You can be a senior engineer, a principal engineer, a distinguished engineer. You can make tons of money and never have a direct report, never have a leadership, never have to do performance reviews for others. Um, but in most organizations, promotion means your team gets bigger. And and I've got a person I'm working with now It's almost unfortunate because he, he was promoted uh, to a leadership role and he doesn't get to do design stuff that he loves to do anymore. And he's trying to figure out how to manage people. He's learning, he's getting good at it, but i'm not convinced that that's what he actually wants to spend his time doing
1: that's an interesting thing and really what you're saying your advice you would give your younger self was kind of ask for or it's okay to ask for help around what you actually want to do or like say what you want to do
2: without sounding too cliche about it i think that the current generation of you know people coming to at a, a, at a university school and entering the workforce you know there's all these cliches about millennials you know not wanting to work Gen, Gen Z not wanting to work or demanding too much, I think they may have over a bit, but uh, certainly I didn't feel confident, in, at least early on, in saying what I wanted to do and what I wanted to learn about. And then that one lesson led me to just not even ask really just say, this is what I was going to do and probably being a little overconfident. But...
1: So as I said, Justin, and in a way you kind of got given that advice because it was through the question of your old boss saying, why didn't you ask? But I mean, is is, but is that question the best advice you've ever been given as well? That, that's one of the next questions, but
2: I don't know. It's funny. I recently had a team I was working with answered the question in, in some pre-work of the best advice they were given. And they, they did a sharing exercise. They were working on a an organizational model for advice. with a financial planning company. Uh, but I actually didn't think about it myself. I'd say that whether it was the best advice or not, it's the one that stuck with me and has had the most sort of profound impact because I can trace out future decisions and think back to that, that turning point, that question I got asked.
1: Yeah, okay, from, the, from, from that point. Um, and that leads into a thing as well, which is, so there's a lot of people actually talking to us just now around this thing of uh, people working around AI or in AI or trying to develop careers in AI. Um, what kind of advice would you have for, for them from a career perspective? Like, how should they approach things? I think that we're, we're seeing a pattern
2: that that evolved in just software development over the last 10 years, and we're just seeing it repeating where so i have a massive aversion of the word coder someone who calls themselves a coder it's not that you're not writing code but um you know you'll get these boot camps popping up these companies that say do our six-week coding boot camp and go be a go be a code it breaks you i spent five years doing a computer engineering degree still didn't figure it all out right it so a lot of software development these days is plugging in one thing to another but very few understand the, the foundations of how it works, right? Like the, the underlying code. I think that the biggest risks we have in AI in general, any sort of system intelligence is getting to a world where no one remembers how, it works, right? where we've abstracted the foundations of what machine learning, what deep learning are. Yeah. So all of the talk about, you know, should we pause on further development and Jeffrey Hinton being coaxed or kind of baited into saying that he regrets his career, which he did not say, as far as I know. But I think the biggest thing that we need to remember is that the, the underlying principles of it are what influence how the systems work. And if you just keep layering abstraction on top of it, no one ends up. So, like the biggest example is this was a in uni, it was a six week project, and it was to create an eight uh, segment display. Not everyone knows what it is. If you think of an old school alarm clock, the number eight, and you, there's eight little lines that could light up and could make any digit zero to eight or zero to yeah. The amount of work to program that, like the actual low-level programming to just get that to light up so that when you typed in one, it would display the two lines on the left, is insane. But we've created abstraction so that in the future, the person programming an, eight, an eight-digit LED doesn't need to know how it works they so can just say one and it's, it's one yeah. you can layer and layer and layer all kinds of abstraction on top of that but now we're doing it with AI which starts to get risky we no longer know why it makes decisions
1: let's look ahead I guess in terms of uh what's next for you before we go into some quickfire questions so like what are you up to this year first of all what what, what are the things at are top of your list for exciting things or interesting things you're doing through through the rest of this year?
2: Yeah, I think for me, uh, more, I I like the challenge working with boards, whether that is as a board director myself with a couple organizations or the hired person to come and facilitate some of the foresight types and stuff. Uh, The reason I like it, uh, there's there's two. There's one altruistic and one very selfish one. The the semi-altruistic one is, it's the right level of people to have this thing. Um, one of the first foresight workshops that I co-led was with a product team, and it was great. And at the end of the session, that the head of product kind of came back and said, "That was really fun, but it was a waste of time because the team developing our products doesn't really need to be thinking five, ten years into the future. They really need to be thinking about the next year or two Can you come back and do this with our our senior team? So boards are the right level to do it with. The the selfish reason I love boards is because they typically are comprised of people from all types of other companies. So a workshop with a board tends to lead to workshops with other boards and other organizations. So that's the selfish reason. And then I'm uh, sure, uh, giving a talk at UX Scotland this year on Foresight uh, to the UX community and a talk at uh World Usability Congress in, uh, in Austria, which I tend to visit most every year. Uh, and so, yeah, those are a couple of things uh excited about.
1: I mean, all good places to go to if you've got to go somewhere, you know, there's worse places to do a conference, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so okay so a few quick fair questions so the first one is where do you go to feed your brain books
2: uh and i generally have a rule it,
1: i break it once in a while. i
2: try to read only books that were written before i was born which is in 1981 okay, okay. there are exceptions so, to that but yeah. i almost always am going back to books that
1: were written far beyond uh beyond my years. there's a history thing going through all of this doesn't you like looking back in order to look forward yeah, and I, I also love books that were written without the uh, clutch of technology,
2: right? So, one of the fundamental ones, there's somewhere behind me, probably multiple copies, is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and in Influence, nearly 100 years old. But every lesson in that book, at a time where even phones didn't really work that mainstream, the lessons you learn in how to actually influence others hold up so uh-huh. true.
1: Yeah, before this whole digital future thing came in that it had a lot of consensus around it, which is constantly wrong. But yeah, interesting. Uh, so also, you are one of the people who's done a TEDx talk that went around the Internet for a little while on the trust economy and things. Uh, why, why do you think trust matters? I think as a facilitator, people have to trust you. So that
2: talk was that's over a decade old now, and it, it was in Tunisia places. And in all honesty, it was also an excuse to go to Tunisia, which was amazing uh but i think that facilitation i I speak french facilitation comes from why do i actually know what it comes from but facile is in french means easy to make something easy and to help have to be trusted to make a process easy is what i think facilitation has and uh you can't do it if they don't
1: now we've done our research on you so another statement you made at one stage which was that if you had five minutes to teach someone anything you teach them how to make a great elevator pitch what? Oh, what, yeah. what? What? What are the makings of a great elevator pitch? I use this.
2: I used it yesterday. I use it three times a week, probably in workshops as an icebreaker. So, uh, the the, the very brief backstory is: I once found myself on stage with Elon Musk before he was crazy, when he was less crazy. Let's say, um, I volunteered an audience of 2,500 people. They asked for volunteers. I was going to put my hand. Yeah, I'll go up and do whatever, and he asked me to pitch something. He told me to did a shit job. And then he gave me seven words, and I now teach everyone those seven words. And it's, you know how well we sow that. So if you give me those seven words, uh, just what they do is they set out the problem, they set out your solution, and then they remind the person why your solution matters to that problem. And the problem is that when you ask people to do an elevator pitch without that, they only talk about their solution. They don't
1: contextualize it with a real problem. Good. Uh, What was the last tech purchase you made that changed your life? Well I I've become a bit of a Luddite lately.
2: The the last tech purchase I made, I don't know if it changed my life was the this microphone here. Uh I, I can't say it changed my life. It might have improved the audio fidelity a bit. Um You know what? I'm looking at it. Uh I, I didn't buy my, my wife bought it for me as a gift, a, a telescope. Um it it's oh. and they are they are tech device. I didn't realize they're so tech devices now they you can run it manually, but if you don't want to you literally take your phone out and you type in what star or constellation you want to look at, and the motors pan and zoom and find it for you.
1: It's very appropriate for a foresight person. Look up in the space. This is the yeah, totally. Uh, what would you say is your most annoying habit? I don't know.
2: You're.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what stresses you out the most? Uncertainty, which I realize is a little
2: odd to say as someone who practices foresight for a living, but yeah, it, it does stress me out.
1: What title would you give your biopic or autobiography? I mean, you're actually going to see a film that's a biopic, over a bit of your life, in a few weeks' time, which is exciting. There's like a double angle to it. <laughs> yeah, like, the, uh, yeah. I, I don't think I play a starring role
0: in that. <laughs> but, uh,
2: I just have too many different hobbies. I think it might be a TV show already, but master
1: of none. All right, okay. Notion of generalism. I think also, I just have too many hobbies is a great, but is a great autobiography title. I mean, that's fine. Uh better at more things than a lot of people, but I don't have a single thing I'm really good at. I'm perfectly happy as such. Two more questions, a bit reflective. The first one is, what are you most proud of in life? Family. I mean, he's still crying right now. It's not been the best day for him, but
2: uh, yeah, absolutely. And then finally, what does your ideal day off look like? It's certainly not at home. It's somewhere else in the world. Uh, I'm flying out tomorrow for a holiday with the family. Uh, so it's probably going for a run or a bike ride in a place that i've never been or rarely go to it's
1: a beautiful segue into the end so uh thanks very much been good to get to know you better
0: yeah thanks nick so that concludes label sessions presents be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform and of course start your journey with us today at labelsessions.com